Step into the husband tunnel, you cunning Sullivans. Welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. I hope you've all been staying hydrated and wearing sunscreen and coming to the aid of any hot cats. Hot cats in the sun with their sweaty bellies, assisting panting dogs, hosing misty water on the arse of parched Antony, smearing tepid mud on the chests of damp frogs, using your lips to blow cooling air over the brow of a bammy postman, spawning Fanta into the mouth of a priest, using your large haircut to cast a shadow over the opening of an ant's nest, rubbing ice cubes on the wood wasp, painting crows white, apologise to the moon, ask it if it can send you cooling rays the way that the sun sends you warm rays, sponge down the armpits of the Avon lady. It's very hot at the moment, is what I'm trying to say. The greedy cunts in the supermarkets are after upping the prices of salad items. Four euros for a punnet of fucking sun-dried tomatoes and duns. Dirty pricks. They're not even sun-dried. They're bothered in an oven. And you can't trust the lettuce at this time of year when you need it most. Wash your lettuce thoroughly at this time of year. Because arse bacteria gets onto lettuce and it grows in this weather. It gets mishandled. Last time I got food poisoning it was from a Starbucks Caesar salad that was blooming with human arse bacteria. I don't know, just salads are unreliable. Salads. No one thinks of salads and and food poisoning, but I'm telling you. Wash your fucking salad leaves, and salad will always let you down when you need it most, when the weather is hottest. E. coli, norovirus. Wash your fucking salad. And not even... The Irish summer salad has become a heritage item now. Like, the, the Irish summer salad doesn't exist... It's no longer a salad of convenience. Now the salad of convenience is arse bacteria, iceberg lettuce, sun-dried tomatoes and hot food counter chicken fillets. But the humble Irish salad is now an ironic act of performance. Anyone who's making a traditional Irish summer salad is doing so deliberately, which immediately negates it as a summer salad because the whole point of the Irish summer salad, which is... I've done a whole podcast on this. Huge podcast on this. The Irish summer salad is half a boiled egg, weird leafy lettuce, folded cold ham, half a tomato, large unnecessary slice of cheddar cheese, and most importantly, it's a culinary act of apathy and convenience. It's too hot, I don't even want to think about food. I'm just going to grab whatever's cold in the deli and put it together. In England they call it picky bits and they eat raw mushroom with it but anyone who's doing that is now doing it deliberately because they're trying to recreate a summer salad. So it's no longer like a convenient thing that happens by just grabbing whatever's at the deli because deli culture has changed. It's all goujons and olives. If this is your first Blind by podcast I suggest going back to an earlier episode. I would like to thank everybody for the feedback I received from last week's episode though. Uh, Last week's episode was about feelings of anxiety that we all have as a result of two years of lockdown. And I was a bit worried about putting it out because I, I was concerned that the experience was too unique to me. But it turns out quite a lot of people really related to what I was saying and experienced a kind of a sense of catharsis 
and clarity from it based on the feedback I'm getting. So I'm really glad I put that out and thank you to everyone who gave me some kind words. So this week I'm chatting to two lads called the two Norries and they're from Cork. James and Timmy are their names and they host the podcast which is about addiction, the prison system, the education system. James and Timmy have both been through addiction. They've both been to prison. They've both had bad experiences in the education system. They both went back to education. James is now a PhD candidate in criminology. And both James and Timmy do a huge amount of community work around addiction. They do work in prisons. They do work with youth. They're trauma-informed. And they're both incredibly fascinating, compassionate people who contribute massively to the national conversation around addiction via their podcast. So in the chat that we have, we speak about addiction, we speak about drug use, we speak about the prison system, the education system, and we focus on the importance of podcasts in particular when it comes to helping people via authentic and honest conversation especially in a country like Ireland where our mental health and addiction services are very very underfunded and as a result difficult to access despite the hard work from very very passionate people that work in addiction and mental health services in Ireland on a systematic level, they're underfunded. So here's my chat with James Leonard and Timmy Long, the two Norries, and you can check out the two Norries podcast or go to the thetwonorries.com to find out more about them. Also, to my international listeners, these two lads have Cork accents, which are quite similar to my Limerick accent, but a bit more cheerful. I don't know if you'd be able to hear that, Maybe even people from Dublin won't won't even be able to tell the difference, but this is a conversation between two lads with Cork accents and one lad with a Limerick accent. So I hope that isn't too exclusionary an experience to my international listeners. So you do a podcast that's mostly about addiction and... uh, We do. What what I do... Your podcast covered addiction, the school system, the education system, the, the, the prison system. You speak about trauma a lot. Um, first off, what I think you're doing is absolutely fucking fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. What I adore about your podcast is how vulnerable you are all the time. Like, when you can say to somebody, I'm scared, I'm insecure, I am worried about other people's opinions of me. Like, you speak in that way a lot. That's what makes people feel safe to listen because we are not allowed to say these things in society. You, you, like, to say to someone, I'm insecure, sometimes I think other people are better than me or sometimes I look down on other people. We're not allowed to say shit like that, you know what I mean? And you speak that way frequently and I love hearing it, you know? And as well, it's nice to hear it in Cork accents. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because... It's just, I love hearing Cork people because it's like Limerick people who are, you know, they've, they've found something nice about their day and they're just nice and happy. <laughs> happy Limerick people. <laughs> what was the, you started the podcast in 2020. 
What was the goal or aims of starting the Two Narrows podcast? So I was working in um, homeless services at the time. Actually, I was working in homeless services, then I was working in education. Um, so that was my background. And Timmy was in construction, but we were both in college as well at the time. And when Timmy talks about the time when we were starting out and we were, we were going to do it, we didn't know what to do. All we knew is that we wanted to make recovery visible. We wanted to talk about stuff you mentioned about, like, we all experienced these things, but we never talk about them. And me and Timmy learned the skills uh, and got the courage to talk about them through the help of therapy and treatment centers and stuff. And we knew the power of leaving yourself vulnerable mm. and talking about this stuff. So we wanted to try and help others to do that, you know. So that was the aim of it. But around that time, uh, when we were planning the podcast, um, I was up in my head around you know, the equipment and everything is expensive and the editing and how to... And uh, you did a podcast on the, hist on the philosophy of podcasts and it was, the timing was beautiful because I remember I was listening to it and in the podcast you said, look, you can get caught up around the equipment and the quality and all this stuff. You said, but the content is the most important thing and if you're passionate about what you do, people will receive it. So don't be worrying about having the best equipment. And that took a lot of pressure off us. And then we said, you know what, no, we'll just focus on the content. And the right people helped us you know, uh, along the way. And now we're on your podcast, 18 months <laughs> later. <laughs> I remember listening to you. Yeah. I remember walking the, the corridors, MTU now, it was the old CIT. And at the time, I, I think I was in my f maybe first or second year of college. And uh, I was going through a lot. It was a difficult time for me. And I was doing a lot of um, researching in myself. You know, I was trying to get, get to know myself a little bit more in depth. And I found your podcast. You know, I found them very, very helpful. I found the one about core beliefs that you did yeah. a good time back. Like that just sat with me so much. And it gave me a great understanding about the belief systems that I was after um, being brought up on. You know, the ones the that were passed that you put on to yourself. Me. Exactly. Yeah. You know, so um, that and other things. And um, it's amazing what information is out there for everybody at the and moment. And then we're not learning it in fucking school. Yeah, I know. You know, you know it's, it's all about people's experiences. And I think there's no better way for anybody to learn new ways to get well, um, new, learn new things about themselves than listening to people that have gone through the exact same forms yeah. of trauma and experiences as themselves, you know? And as well, what I think is important is that the person isn't doing it from a position of, I have all this fucking knowledge now, yeah. and I'm going to make this knowledge seem inaccessible by using words you don't understand. Mm. And then all of a sudden you don't feel that this thing is accessible because it's like, that person's mad smart up there now, and how can I access this? But for me, like, I, I always speak about mental health as, like, here's my, here would be, I think the society that I would like to see regarding mental health, right, is, do you know the way when you're growing up, when your buddies breaks their leg and they get a cast? And what do we all do? We race around to sign our names on mm. that cast. <laughs> How beautiful is that? Mm. Here's a person with an injury and we're celebrating this. You know, we're having empathy, compassion. Imagine that if someone with an internal injury, an internal wound, someone is a depression, anxiety, addiction, and people gather around them 
what, what I'm, what I'm, what I love about the signing of the cast, right, is there's humour in it, mm. because sometimes when we speak about addiction or suicide, we get real serious all mm. of a sudden. I've got depression, I've got anxiety, and you say it to a close friend, and that's very frightening and intimidating for the other person, and now you're not dealing with your friend anymore, you're dealing with a frightened person who has now changed into, it's what I call it is the, do you know when you go to a funeral and there's the, sorry for troubles? Yeah. Like that's useless. Yeah. It's fucking useless. It's not authentic, it's yeah. not human. Mm. And I know myself as someone who's, who's gone through bereavement, it's heartbreaking to be at the front row and you see people you know a long time and you're not getting a hug, you're not getting anything that's authentic to your friendship, you're getting, sorry for troubles. Yeah. Because you feel alone. And we do that a lot with mental health. We shut down. Mm. Whereas fucking taking the piss out of part, if it's your friend and you have that relationship, taking the piss out of their depression, mm. Mm. taking the piss out of anxiety, there's your healing. Yeah. That's the signing of the cast, but it's on the inside of someone's mind. You, you know? know, the gas thing about the cast is, you no. Know, when you go in home, when you're a young fella with a cast and somebody's after drawing a big Mickey on your leg. <laughs> <laughs> or a hash plant. I know, and then, and then what happens is you get in trouble for it, like, and it's like, I didn't fucking draw it. <laughs> it's not drawn to scale either. Yeah. <laughs> oh, That's actually the same as if you bring someone on your podcast and you end up getting in trouble for what someone else says, and it's like, they yeah. fucking said it, it's just yeah. my podcast. Yeah, yeah. But you give them the platform, that's the thing. Yeah. And that's why you have to be very careful who you bring on. Mm -hmm. Like, we vet people all the time in terms of, like, um, if, for two different reasons. First of all, you have to check the motive. There's a lot yeah. of, uh, of self-promotion out there. A lot of bullshit. Yeah, and uh, it's very hard to find who's authentic and who's not. Hopefully we do a good job at that. Outside of that then, when people are in early recovery, and it could be recovery from mm -hmm. addiction or mental health, they've been through a tough time, and now they feel great. Mm -hmm. But it's still early days. And sometimes when you feel great, and now you remember, and I cringe about it, six months sober, you get your clean tag in the mm -hmm. AME, and you put it up on Facebook, and fucking mm -hmm. it's great. You think back and say, yeah, I probably shouldn't have done that, you know? We get a lot of people like that. This is my story, and I've been through all this, and now I'm you know, four months away from that, and I want to come on your podcast. And we're like, Do you know what? You have a great story. It would make a great podcast, but it wouldn't be necessarily good for you. And you have to worry. You, know, you have to think about the guest all the time. What is it about that? What's dangerous about that for the person? Because when, you know, when you're in an early recovery, right? Like, you might be aware of the wheel of change, mm -hmm. do you know? Um, and relapse is in the wheel of change. Mm -hmm. So there's pre-contemplation and contemplation and action, and then sometimes relapse. So like, relapse is an inevitable part of recovery for some people. Mm -hmm. So if you're in recovery from mental health or anything, addiction, um, and you go out and you tell the world you're not, you're not uh, struggling yeah. anymore, you've some amount of pressure on you to maintain you that. you created a new identity as someone yeah. who's cured. And yeah. maybe relapse, like I didn't get recovery first time around, there was loads of attempts. So like it wasn't until I was ready that I spoke about it. But some people that do it too quickly, then the relapses, it just compounds everything, you mm -hmm. know? And like you've so much pressure to maintain it. And then when you relapse, you just go to ground. Um, and it just makes the relapse a lot worse because... Is there ever a danger as well of we'll say you get your six months badge, right? And you have this little achievement, and then you kind of go, fuck it, fair play to me, I'll have a pint. Mm -hmm. That happens um, all Do you know time. what I mean? Yeah. But seriously, because yeah. the thing is, when, when you achieve something, naturally the body wants a reward. Mm -hmm. 
And if re- substances are your reward, it's it's like when you are in recovery, it, it, the areas that you have to be very aware of are are the good times, because like when you're feeling great about yourself, you know you could nearly forget about how bad things were before as well. Yeah. And um, that's not something you anybody in recovery needs to ever forget is how bad it was and how it felt to be mm-hmm. back in that place. And for me, that's one of the most important things, like, is, you know, when I was at my worst, walking the streets, you know, knowing that I couldn't go to this person because uh, what I... What was your addiction? Al- alcohol, drugs, gambling, and... <sighs> Everything. My wife is probably out there and over the list of them that way. Right <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, I'm in recovery now for multiple years, thank God, right? Um, if I watched, I remember I watched uh, Train Spot and Two was out. Mm-hmm. I know your, your song was in that actually. I know, they paid yeah. me not in the cunts. <laughs> <laughs> but before I watched Train Spot and Two, I rewatched the first one. Yeah. And as miserable as they looked mm-hmm. in, in the squat and with the dead baby. There was a part of me thinking, fuck it, that looks all right, do you know? Because, yeah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because you know why? They're, they're yeah. completely out of it. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It looks miserable and there's HIV and blood and everything and dead babies, but they, I know exactly how they feel because they don't feel a thing in it. Mm. Yeah. And there's a part there, yeah, like, like you remember the pain, but you also remember how good it is, whereas mm-hmm. logically you shouldn't never have a fantasy thought about something like that. How dangerous is that? It can be very dangerous if you haven't got um, the awareness, I suppose, to expose it. Do you know, like, I suppose you learn through personal development and through certain books and, and self-help and stuff like that to observe your thoughts and to not identify mm-hmm. yourself with your thinking mind. Mm-hmm. So years ago, I was driven by my thoughts. Mm-hmm. If I didn't feel like it on the day, I didn't do it. That, that was going on a date or going to work. Or if I, I remember in a treatment centre, uh, the counsellor up there, his name was John, we sound. And uh, one morning I was in there and I was depressed. And I didn't want to, it was on a farm and you had to get up and work on the farm, which was grand. Like, but on this day I didn't want to do it. And I stayed in bed and he came up and he says, James, come on. I said, no, I, I'm not up for it today, I'm not up for it today. And he says, stand up, he says. He says, repeat after me. In spite of how I am feeling today, I will turn up for life. And he says, you can feel the thought, or you can think the thought. He says, but you can still go about your day. It doesn't mean it's true. Yeah. Exactly. And it doesn't have to rule your whole day yeah. or rule your behavior. So when a thought like that comes in for you, and recently I had my wisdom tore out. It was a fucking nightmare. I got three stitches, dry sockets, and I was trying to be a martyr. I didn't want to take opiates for yeah, obvious yeah, reasons, yeah, yeah. right? After about 24 hours, I was into the chemist looking for opiates. All yeah. right? They ran out after two days. And I was f- so fucked up in my head about going into the chemist again for another box because it brought me back to that person yeah. who I used to be, trying to get scripts, trying to plum ask people for tablets. Yeah. And it's just that memory, you know? But like th- that part of the addict brain, it, it's always there. It's just the recovery side of it is more stronger today. So you'd never use a word like cured? Definitely not. Mm. There's, it's, it's, it's a prolonging journey to, to heal. Like we mentioned recovery. You have to really, really use that word recovery in the right context, you know, because there's people still, like, there's people away from alcohol and drugs, and they say they're in recovery, but, like, recovery is is, is recovery from behaviours that you had during addiction. It's recovery from trauma that possibly push you into 
these addictions and alcoholism and all these different things, you know, you need to be very, very, very careful. And, and we were talking about pain. Like, there's constructive ways of, of dealing with pain and there's not, you know? Yeah. Like, we, we can see psycho, psychologists, psychotherapists and, and talk about the past and, and bring up the emotions of all these experiences that we may have went through as, as kids and, and during addiction, you know? But if you're taking, if you're, if you're on, uh, no, medication is, is critical for, mm -hmm. for people that are, are it, it helps people. Like I was, I've been on antidepressants mm -hmm. myself for, for my mental health, you know, I, I couldn't cope with what was going on around me, but it is a short-term kind of thing. If anybody is really, really adamant about really becoming their true self, you know, it's about really finding real ways of dealing with it. And for me, it was about dropping the fighter mentality that I always had, you know, that I lived with, that saved me growing up as a young child because of my different circumstances and, and in different ways. Could you talk about that? So that the, the fighter mentality, what yes. do you mean by that? Like growing up for me, I, I grew up uh, with a single parent. My mother, um, she suffered badly with her mental health. I was the oldest of three boys and, you know, we, we were very, very, very poor. Mm -hmm. um, on the streets, you'd see, uh, back in the 80s, like, it, it, it was normal to see a married couple. It wasn't to see a, a mother bringing up three boys in their own. Yeah. It's different today, but back then, it was, it, it was it looked upon very nicely, but there was no father figure there in the house, and what that meant was there was a lot of bullying, but mm -hmm. there was a lot of violence within the home. You know, there was a lot of fighting out in the street, but I also had to fight basically growing up because we were in poverty. I had to battle my way into trying to get food to feed us, feed myself. You know, there was fighting on the streets. You know, there was fighting inside the family home. And it was like I had a battle every single stage of my life. And I had that innate way about myself. You know, I'd built up this mechanism to get through life because of... Like, life wasn't set at a really, really good stage for me growing up, so I had to build these ways about myself. So I had this coming into recovery. I had the fighter mentality. Yeah. So when I was sitting inside in the prison cell for 18 hours a day, right, early recovery, three or four months in, into my recovery, um, and my head is telling me to take my own life, do you know, to give up and everything, you know, that I was a bad person, you're horrible, you know, you're this, you're that. Like, these were really, really negative thoughts And does happening. the fight turn on yourself then? It's like, it's like back and forth. It was yeah. like back and forth to fight. No, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a bad person, I've done bad things, blah, 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 blah. But then all of a sudden, just one day, I just said, Do you know what, I'm not, I'm not going to fight. And that was, the, that was the turning point for me. I, I stopped because I, I was after gaining a little bit of awareness as well and a little bit of compassion for myself through meditation. And I stopped fighting. I, I stopped the fighting. When and did you I, discover meditation? I discovered meditation in, um, in about my fourth or fifth month into my prison sentence in the Midlands. Uh, it was given to me, a book and an audio book was given to me by the prison psychologist within the prison because I couldn't retain information yeah. because I was, I was up Fight here. or flight all the time. Constant. Like, yeah. And I was full of adrenaline and I was constantly, I was hypervigilant. I was all over the place. And 
that was the only thing that was given to me. But at the start of meditation, for me, I literally had to stop my legs from mm-hmm. bouncing off the floor. That's how mm-hmm. bad, you know, it, it was for me. And I, I, I had nothing left to give. I, there was no more. I couldn't go left or right anymore for anything else. Drugs couldn't be a part of my life anymore because I knew I wanted my wife and my, my kids back in my life. You know, so if I went down that route, they were gone. Mm-hmm. You know, and I didn't want this. You know, although there were days where I wanted more drugs to take me away from the pain. Yeah. But anyhow, when the meditation, I, I started and slowly done a few minutes here, there, and I just continued and it kept growing. Did you have a moment with meditating where you, it, it, the first time it hits, the yeah. first time it's like... The first time I got I, I know a calmness that I do yeah. not know. What was that like? That was... Um, it's, it's like a break from the, the duality, you know, the constant back and forth in the head. Yeah. You know, it's like Timmy is fighting the conditioning, you know, the conscious mind is fighting the, the unconscious mind, you know, yeah, yeah, all yeah. The, the, the different experiences, the core beliefs. And there's the conscious mind here and you're fighting what you have been brought up around and everything else. And, and I'm sitting there and it's like, the fuck and then meditation was able to give me a, a bit of an awareness this is why i think podcasts are so important because <clears throat> if you think of a podcast right podcasts happen on our phones mm. we listen to podcasts on our phones all of us since about 2015 no 2014 all of us are now continually scrolling right it's an endless scroll yeah. now the problem is with the endless scroll whether it's instagram twitter or facebook we we're in a consistent state of confusion because the the scroll isn't curated, right? So you can have there's a photograph of my friend's dinner. There's a cute cat. There's some horrendous news about Ukraine. Mm-hmm. There's another dinner. But those are all very conflicting things happening all, very suddenly. Yeah. And the thing is, is we get bombarded. So the sensation of scrolling is no one emotion. Mm. It's all of them at once and we can't handle it. Mm. What podcasts do, podcasts are the only mindful space that we often have left in our lives now. When you stick on a podcast and you're actually listening, it's one of the few things that that's the one thing I'm doing right now. If you're in a fucking, if you're listening to a podcast and you're stuck into it, you are not taking out your phone to also go Mm. through Twitter. You're in that fucking podcast and you leave the podcast space feeling refreshed. Mm -hmm. And the reason is, is for, for once in my day today, I just did one thing and one thing only. And I listened to that podcast. And I think that's why they're working. And when you can do something like we're trying to do, which is introduce introspective thinking, asking people to look inside themselves, it's the perfect environment because you're naturally mindful mm-hmm. when you're listening to a fucking podcast. Yeah, yeah. And we were chatting backstage about, uh, I won't say her name because I don't know if the study is out there. Is the study public yet? Well, she shared it on Twitter. She did share it, okay. It's, so not, a, it's not published yet, but she spoke what she was talking, okay. what she's doing. Like. So, so Dr. Sharon Lambert, who I had Sharon on this podcast and the boys had Sharon. Sharon is fucking amazing. And mad. She works in UCC. She's trauma is her thing. She, she's an expert in trauma. But she's doing a, a study on the impact of podcasts on, on people's mental health. In mental Ireland. health themed podcasts and how they help if they help. And uh, she put out um, a survey monkey on social media and she rang me a couple of weeks ago with some of the, res- some of the 
answers. I spoke about you know your own podcast, but like you do um, podcast themed on you know mental health and you know self help and stuff like that. And we do the same. Um, so we get comments all the time of lads just listen to this podcast and they help me in this way and I sent it to my sister and I have to help her. So we get up them com- comments every day of the week and you'll probably get them yourself. Yeah. So if we go around telling everybody or my, my podcast they have to help her in this way, when you get it from an independent researcher, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. it has going to have a lot more weight. So I'm very excited to see how people are, like, what they're actually saying. But one of the comments was like... Um, with Blind Boy, with the Tonaris or whoever, there's no waiting list, they just press play. Yeah. yeah. And like that's a sad indictment in Ireland. It's a sad thing, but my hope with Sharon's study and the findings is that it ends up embarrassing the fuck out of the powers that be. Yeah. Because the thing is, we're trying our best, mm. but who the fuck are we? We're just lads speaking mm. about our experience. Yeah. Like, how sad and shit is it that the people are going to listen to us and not have access to fucking services. Mm. Like, I enjoy doing my podcast and I love helping people. I love doing it. But I also feel like shit that there's no other option. Mm. Listening to some cunt with a fucking bag in his head. (laughs) But seriously, like, that's shit. That's really fucking shit. Yeah. 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 But... do you know what's so positive about your podcast and our podcast? Like, we basically watched you in the last few years and listened to you. And what we're doing now is based on what you're doing now. Mm. And there's probably another... Listening. Load and it's, so it's now it's a collective fucking thing. conversation. So the yeah. people are taking it. They're, ta- they're taking the initiative themselves. And they're going out there yeah. and they're educating each other. And that's the beauty of a podcast. So if I'm suffering with drug addiction... I'll go on to Blind Boys podcast or James or some, some other one and, and, and I look up addiction or someone struggling. I'm actually getting an AA meeting within my room and I'm yeah. sitting there and I'm watching it and I'm learning and I'm relating to this person and I'm getting ideas of where I need to be myself, where I need to go, you know, and that's the beauty of a podcast. And there's people listening to you in particular who simply aren't ready to walk into that meeting yet. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Or, or, what I find with people who listen to myself, like going to a counsellor for the first time is fucking terrifying. Mm. Admitting to yourself, I need help, is fucking terrifying. Because when you're not, you feel like you're fucking broken. And you yeah. feel like you're, you're wrong. And you feel like this person is going to tell me more about why I'm wrong and why I'm broken. And like Jesus, like fucking hell. When I think about when I first went into counselling, like I, 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 I hadn't a fucking clue. I, I, all I knew was uh, a couple of times a day, a day I think I'm dying. Yeah. Mm. That was it. A couple of times a day I think I'm dying, and I didn't know that it was called a panic attack. And then your the the counsellor says to me, "Oh, that's a panic attack. That's what that's called." Loads of people get them immediately. Fifty percent of the anxiety is gone because I'm mm. not alone. I thought I was the only person in the world who just is at home going, oh, I'm dying. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm currently in the process of dying at this very moment. Yeah. All right. And then I don't die, and it happens again after the six o'clock news. Mm-hmm. I thought, I was like, fuck, I'm going to go into this cunt now, and he's going to diagnose this as me being the only person in the world having this. No. And then he just says to me, that's a panic attack. That's just uh, a fire alarm going off with no fire. Mm-hmm. 
And then you go through the process and you go, why are you getting these? And then you speak about your childhood and then all of a sudden you speak about, oh, I've got very low self-esteem. Yeah. And it's this big, big, long journey. And then, you go, and then you go on your podcast and you share your experience yeah. because the other person that's coming up behind you is in the exact same position. Yeah. And I remember when you were talking there, I remember like um, when I was in addiction, you know, like putting you know, ham in my body with needles and tablets and overdoses and stuff like that and thinking like, why am I doing, I don't enjoy this, I feel guilty and shameful, I'm hurting my family, I'm lonely and isolated and all these things, but I keep doing it and I keep doing it. And then eventually when I went, therapy and stuff like that, not knowing what to expect, but you learn about like, you're, you're doing it because you feel a sense of fear and anxiety you have in you since you were a child and you feel insecure and, and all these, and you work through that. So then what we do on the podcast is, for the, the next James coming up is, I know how you feel, and when you try this, this is what you'll feel, this is what you'll experience, this is what it'll be like, it'll be tough, these are the challenges you'll meet, but this is the reward you'll get when you mm -hmm. persevere with it, and if you just take that risk, because it is risky, disclosing details to somebody else, but some breakthroughs can be got through it, you know, and yeah. that's the, the power of the podcast, just to show people the pathway out of it. Mm -hmm. Let's have a little ocarina pause right now, so that you can hear a digitally inserted advert. Where the fuck is my ocarina? Hold on. I'm in my studio, I'm not in my office. Too hot for my office. There's the ocarina. Yeah, so I'm, I'm back in my home studio this week. Um, I didn't go into my office because of the heat. Um, my home studio is quite dark, so it's cool. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello, this is an advertisement for better help. I have frequently attended therapy for the past 20 years when I experience anxiety or depression or when I have difficulty naming and labelling my emotions, identifying my emotions. I often seek the help of a professional therapist to improve my emotional literacy. I've attended therapy in person and I've attended therapy online. If online therapy is something you might be interested in, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, it's convenient, flexible, and it's suited to your schedule. All you gotta do is fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So give it a go. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash blindboy today to get 10% off your first month. That's better 
help.com/blindboy That was the ocarina pause which means you heard a digitally inserted advert that ACAS put there. Support for this podcast comes from you, the listener, via the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast. This podcast is my full-time job. This podcast is how I earn a living. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, if it gives you solace, if it gives you joy, if it gives you entertainment, if it gives you a bit of escapism, then please consider paying me for the work that I'm doing. All I'm looking for is the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month. That's it. But if you can't afford that, don't worry about it. You can listen for free. Because the person who can afford it is paying for you to listen for free. So everybody gets a podcast. I get to earn a living. It's a wonderful model based on kindness and soundness. But I would urge you to become a patron if you can afford that price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month. Because that's what keeps this podcast completely, fully independent. I am not beholden to any advertiser. What makes podcasts shit and what makes all media shit. What makes anything shit is when advertisers step into a creative space and they say, we're sponsoring this and now you have to change how you make the thing you make in order to accommodate our adverts. So, I don't know, if this podcast was sponsored by a big brand, they would say, don't talk about addiction this week. I don't think we want you to do an addiction podcast. That's not really going to get a lot of likes. It's not going to get a lot of listens, and we're paying for this with our brand. Instead, can you do an interview with a controversial, reactionary, right-wing prick so that everyone will get really pissed off about it online? And you'll end up getting views that way. Could you do that instead or else we won't sponsor your podcast? So I I don't want to operate like that. I want to be able to tell advertisers to go fuck themselves. And I want to make what I want to make. And I want each week my podcast to genuinely be something I'm passionate about. And to make the content I want to make. So when the podcast is actually funded by you the listener. Then I have the freedom to do that. And don't just support my independent podcast. Support whatever independent podcast that you enjoy and that you listen to. And it doesn't just have to be monetary support. Like the podcast. Follow it on the podcast apps. Share the podcast on your social media. Speak about it. Recommend the podcast to your friend. Leave a review. These are all ways that you can help independent podcasters in an environment where independent podcasters are being crushed by big corporate goals Uh, one little gig advert I am doing a live podcast this weekend at the Ballybunion Arts Festival down in Kerry and I have a lovely guest lined up come down and check that out Ballybunion is a beautiful area in Kerry and check out the Ballybunion Arts Festival in general because there's a lot of really cool acts at it there's music there's a lot of workshops, like creative workshops around poetry. Um, Mankon Magan is doing his show down there. I've had Mankan on this podcast twice. Or Manchon. It is Manchon, isn't it? Manchon Magan, yeah. And Belly Bunyan is just beautiful. And it's in that wonderful area of Kerry. So if you're thinking about a little 
staycation this weekend, come down to Ballybunion and catch my live podcast at the Ballybunion Arts Festival. Okay, back to my chat with two Norries, where we speak about, in this part we speak about drug use, and also Timmy describes his experience of using ayahuasca as a form of addiction treatment. And it goes without saying, you're all adults, but a lot of this shit is illegal, so no one's telling you to use drugs. So, there's one thing I wanted to talk about you, uh, to talk with you specifically, Timmy, right? You recently did uh, ayahuasca as part of your addiction recovery. Yeah. Can you speak about that? <coughs> First off, what is ayahuasca? Ayahuasca is um, it's a plant-based medicine, and it, there's a DMT base within it. And what it does is... Um, what it done for me, okay? What it done for me was it stripped me completely back. I would have... Um, I, would, I would do meditation quite a bit and, and I'd be a little bit of aware of, of what's going on in my life and I, I, I know the difference between the, what's going on in my head and what's reality to a degree, you know, <laughs> not, not perfect in any way, my wife will tell you that, yeah. Yeah. but what it does is it, 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 it strips your ego and it brings it right back and heightens all your senses, your hearing, your sight, and I went down for three nights to this retreat center. I walked in the door, and they told me we were going to do it that night. And I looked in the kitchen, and I see this Spanish guy. He was brewing a pot of ayahuasca, okay? And um, they said the ceremony would start at 10 o'clock that night, so I was grand. So I set myself up, and I was full of fear, as you would yeah. be. I was full of fear. And I went in and I took the first cup inside in the room. It's small black stuff. It's really, really horrible. Uh, <laughs> you know, I drank out of bats inside in manky apartments where we'd go out robbing kegs out of pubs and throw them into the bat and fill the bat and drink it with, you know, the bat would be full of stale. And, you know, just, I've done that, but this stuff is just rotten, right? <laughs> <laughs> But anyhow, I drank it, and I, and I went into the experience with real trust. I really trusted this. I looked at what was going to be happening to me. At, I looked at it, and I, I believed in the whole process. I knew it was going to be something to really help me to understand myself and get in touch with stuff that I never did before in my lifetime. And I had that going into the experience. So after about an hour... I start getting a little bit lighter, lighter, not stressed, light, lighter. And then they give you another cup, and that was my second cup. And uh, next I start seeing everything getting a little bit brighter, you know. And then they give you another cup. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when the magic happens. <laughs> um, so I got the third cup, and... Uh, and at this point, no, there is a lady singing the room. She was chanting. She was walking up and down the room with a guitar. And then she'd use a drum and she'd be singing, you know, and they might play some really, really powerful music. And there was a fire lighting in the corner and you could, you could hear the, 
the, the wood crisping, you know. You could hear everything. And you look around the room and everything was so, it was just, it was just the realest thing in, that I've ever experienced. It was, it was so real. But the, 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 main, the main experience for me was after I went right into the experience, I experienced love for mm -hmm. the first time in my lifetime. Um, and I, I cried. And my understanding of both was this, the, the crying was a sadness that I would have felt as a young, young child going through dif difficult circumstances in my life. Um, and it brought me back to that moment. And it was, it was like, it was like it was showing me the moment in time where I completely shut off from everything as a young, young child because of my situation. And the love was the love that I was born with. Yeah. That I was, every human being is born with. And one minute you're laughing, you know, and you're hugging yourself on the bed like this. The next minute you're crying and you can feel a sadness that you've never, ever, ever felt, you know. But then it, it starts giving you all these bursts of information, you know. And the information is only relevant to you around your own life. And it, it can be really, really um, hard to understand because the information is so intense, right? Imagine this information be given to you raw, mm -hmm. no sugar coating, no, ah, it's not that bad, you know, it's completely raw. And while that was happening to me, I, I was trying to control myself and say, oh, it's okay. It's okay, you know. At one point, it, it, it was after telling me that, as a young child, there was mad, mad things happen, and and, and it was raw, and, and I was saying, oh. and I'd bring myself back. Five minutes later, I'd be hugging myself again in the bed, you know, and then I'd be crying. But I came out of that experience anyway the next day, and the next day then there was an integration session, and I spoke about my experience, and I told them what happened. And I got massive, massive healing from it, you know. And I was able to look back on the night as well and, and get a little bit of more of understanding around the information because sometimes the information, some people can get misguided around the information and not understand it. You know, you have to be really, really um, <sighs> relaxed about it and understand what's going on. The second night, I done it. It was a different experience. The second night, I lay down after the three cups, and I could see a green energy starting from my toes and working its way up my body. And it was like it was healing me from from down here the whole way up. And it stopped here, then down around my tummy here, just by my belly button, and it it paused. And I kind of understood why it paused because I'd understand a little bit about the chakras and stuff. Yeah. And it paused because there's a lot more work for me to be doing around this area, a lot more stuff to be dealt with in my own life. Um, and Do you, was that pausing there? Yeah. Would that be related in any way to the, the anger and the confrontation that you spoke about earlier? Yes. I knew, I knew my own head from working with, with uh, psychologists and, and psychotherapists that there was more work for me to be doing here and when it stopped there it was like it stopped and it went back down and it just worked here and I clear it was like I cleared the, the, the lower center which is down the perineum your first chakra and that was cleared 
and I was happy. And the information then came, and it just said, there's more, you have to come back. You know, it wasn't like, come back next week and you, we'll get stoned again. It was not like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, it wasn't like that. It was like, we, we, we'll, we'll do it again, you know, and, and I haven't gone back again since. It's two and a half years now, since two years, but I haven't gone back. But the third night, it was the third night. So I started the third night and I drank the third cup and I was lying down on the bed. And next time, I go, fuck, what's that? My tummy started bleh, like, and I, you know, I just next I ran and I got a dish, and I was getting sick for about four hours at the end of the bed, just constantly burping, getting sick, and it was like this black stuff was coming up from my tummy. There was nothing in my tummy, but it was coming up, and the information was just saying like, this is this is trauma. This is a lot of. This is, you're releasing experiences. You're releasing all these emotions that were trapped in your body from experiences growing up. And it was definitely, definitely one of the break, so, the, the turning points in my life. So a question I'd have for you around it, right, is, <clears throat> so you're taking the ayahuasca and you're confronting trauma, right? Yeah. But also with addiction, you're medicating for trauma. Mm -hmm. And as you said earlier, you've done a lot of drugs, a lot of different drugs. Yeah. In your experience with, with those drugs from the past, was there any similarity in, in that? What I mean is, did any drugs take you to that place where you have an awareness of something in there? Or, mm. Do you know, you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, I do 100%. Did any, any of the drugs from the past give me a similar experience to the ayahuasca Similar, but also way. confronting that trauma. But yeah. Um, no, no, because when you're taking drugs, drugs, yeah, the drugs, 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 taking. I like that, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when you're taking them, it's like, it's like, it's, it's not real, you know, yeah, it, it's making you become a different person, yeah, you know, you're becoming, you're getting self esteem, you're getting confidence, the things that you wouldn't have, ego based stuff, exactly. With this okay. stuff, there is no ego. You're, I was completely stripped. There was nothing there. There was, you know, I wasn't thinking negative about anybody or I, I didn't want to go out and fucking sell drugs or rob anyone. There was nothing like that. This was just completely solely based on helping me understand me as a human being. And if, if I'm ready to heal with something, we'll do a bit of healing around it as well. And that's what I got from it. I got a bit of healing. And one thing you said there, which I, which I found really fucking beautiful, was you said you, 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 you felt the love that you were born with. Mm. And which is something, that, like I try to speak a lot about a thing called um, our intrinsic sense of self-worth. Yeah. That every fucking human being, every single one of us, has this self-worth, worth inside of us, and it's no greater or lesser than any other human being. Exactly. We're, we all have this, and we... we no aspect of our behavior can take away from that. Even if you've done bad things, we all have this intrinsic worth. And someone asked me recently to explain it, and I said the closest thing I could think of was a tiny little baby. Yeah. When, if, if you got like nine babies together, right, you're never gonna go to nine babies and go, are you like that one? <laughs> uh, I don't like that one. <laughs> um, that one's a bit long. 
That, you don't. Like, if, if you see multiple babies, every single fucking baby is amazing. Yeah. All babies are incredible and beautiful in the most equal, wonderful, awe-inspiring way. And that's intrinsic worth. Mm. Babies are nothing but intrinsic worth. And then what happens is that baby becomes a toddler and they go to fucking school. And then someone says, you're not good enough. Yeah. And then that baby, that toddler learns to compare themselves to another toddler. And then the fucking ego, and then they get hurt. Yeah. And then the human grows from that. And depending on those experiences, that human can either become a happy person mm. or someone who's not happy and so, or someone who's angry or someone who acts out, mm. you know? Mm. But all of us have that. We were all fucking born as yeah. beautiful, wonderful babies that were no better than any other baby, just wonderful babiness glowing out of us. Exactly. And it never left any of us. Yeah. It yeah. never left any of us. It's all it's fucking there. Yeah. And you're able to tap into it. And like when Timmy was talking about the, the plant medicine and the drugs, drugs, like it, de it depends on what the motivation is when you use the drug as well. Yeah. Like, um, Timmy's whole motivation using the ayahuasca was to uncover trauma and help him work through them. Yeah. Right? So, when you use drugs, drugs, the whole motivation is to block them out. So you're actively trying Escape. to suppress that stuff. Yeah. Now, if you wanted to take drugs, drugs, to, to get the goal Timmy did, you can actually do that too. Because some people use MDMA to work through depression. Yeah, and some, mushrooms as well. Yeah. Exactly. So, like, it's not about the drug. Like, obviously, they act in different ways. But if your motivation, it depends on what your motivation is when you're using the drug. And the and, environment when you are using yeah. it. A guest who I've had on, on my podcast twice, uh, Dr. Paul Litnitsky, he's based in Australia. And he's been given the license. In it. He's a, a neuroscientist and a psychologist. He's been given the license by the Australian government to study... Uh, MDMA and mushrooms yeah. to help people through trauma and what he's, what he's doing specifically is that he's using MDMA to help veterans in war mm. to, to basically, how he described it was there'd be veterans who'd go through something deeply traumatic in war and then they can revisit this using mushrooms mm. with that sense of safety so they're back at the triggering moment mm. where they switched off but they're now there safely looking at it and working through it. And then the mushrooms, he's using it with people who are in palliative care, people who are about mm. to die. Yeah. And they use the mushrooms as, as a dress rehearsal for death to basically take them through what he thinks death will be like and for them to process that. I just wanted to say this there was something very funny. You go back, you were do, talking about the experiment about the MDMA. Back in the 90s, we were doing them experiments as well. Up and up. Up in Sir Henry's. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, fucking, you'd be, you'd be out in the street on a Wednesday and you'd be fucking threatening to kill a fella. You'd be out on a Friday night with him. You'd be buzzing with him. You'd be fucking telling him you love him and everything. You'd be hugging and kissing him and fucking telling him, do you know so. Did you ever hear them? Um, Sean Ryder has, you know Sean Ryder from the Happy Mondays? Mm. He has a lovely story. So it was about 1986 when like ecstasy wasn't that well known and Sean Ryder and all his buddies from Manchester were out in the pub so they're after taking a lot of yokes and they're fucking dancing having crack not giving a shit because they're on yokes but in the same bar was a bunch of squaddies like English soldiers who were hard cunts ready for a fight and all of these squaddies were very threatened by Sean Ryder and his buddies yeah. not being hard 
and taking their tops off and dancing. They were going, what? The, what are you doing? We need to fight immediately. <laughs> so the squaddies were about to fucking scrap with Sean Ryder, but Sean Ryder's on yoke, so he's like, no, 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 we're not going to scrap. Take one of these. <laughs> so he gave yokes to all the squaddies. They all took their tops off and had an amazing night. <laughs> but it has the power to do that. Yeah. Do you know, and I remember when I first started taking ecstasy in my teenage years, like before I ever took an ecstasy tablet, it was always, always kind of felt like, um, like I dropped out of sports, uh, kind of felt alienated, kind of alone, isolated, um, like feeling of, you know, insecurity, fear, anxiety, this stuff, you know. And when I started taking ecstasy, I remember feeling like, love, a sense yeah. of belonging, a sense yeah. of camaraderie, you know, a sense of like we were all in this together and it wasn't yeah, yeah, a sense of connection. And like when you don't have that sense of connection, like I suppose a positive form of that would be through sport yeah. or through education. But like for myself and Timmy and many like us, we didn't have that. So what we had was another coping skill and it was drugs, you know. And I, I said something earlier on as well around um do I believe addiction can be cured, you know and that's probably a controversial question. I probably gave a, a controversial answer. I said no, but I feel for me, no. But I like the world is a big place with billions of people, and there's plenty of people out there probably that were in addiction, work through their traumas, and now they can have a drink or whatever. Yeah. And fair play to them. I know for a fact that's not me. I've tried it. I've tried different ways and means of using. I'll only take a, a, a Xanax, I won't take or a Hypnol. I'll drink uh, beer and not vodka. I'll smoke heroin, I won't inject it. Tried it all, and it all ended in the same way. Um, also, like, you have to check again, check the motivation for the use, you yeah. know? Like, if you're, um, if you smoke weed, right? And I'm not pointing my fingers. I do. <laughs> <laughs> if you have a... Right, you're a busy man, you're productive, you create some great content and people, you know, your fans and followers, what you're doing is good. And at the end of the night or at the end of the week, you're entitled to put your feet up and have a big fat five skinner. Yeah. Fair play at you. Yeah. Right? And the audience here, it's a Saturday night, the sun is out, end of the week or after COVID, yeah. people are entitled to have a can. The problem becomes when that giant is in the morning or the can is on a yes. Monday morning and then... And you're, the why? Exactly, and the way um, the relationship isn't great, the job isn't going great, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not feeling good in myself, and you're, then you start, that's then when it becomes the problem. And like for myself and Timmy, who are abstinent in terms of we don't take anything, complete abstinence, that suits us. But some people, uh, when I work in drug and alcohol services, some people come in the door to me in very bad condition, and mm -hmm. they say, I can't wait until I'm in recovery, believing that recovery starts the day they become abstinent. And what I always say to them is, the day you decide to try and make your life a bit better, that's the day you're in recovery. And it's along a continuum of, sometimes it might be medication, and people can go on and live very full lives and be happy and rear families and work while on medication. They can do it while on methadone as well. Yeah. And people can reduce their use to a, way, to a place where, um, and even alcohol, to a place where it's actually manageable. There's a, a, a treatment called heroin-assisted treatment, and it's been in the UK for... 100 years, but it's not well known. Uh, it's not widely practiced, it's practiced in Canada as well. For heroin addicts, where all other forms of treatment have not worked, like methadone, suboxone, uh, abstinence-based treatments, 12 steps and all this, for whatever re reason, they're always on the street using and injecting heroin, right? Mm -hmm. So her heroin-assisted treatment 
um, just basically means the doctor prescribes them a pharmacy-grade heroin. Mm -hmm. um, they don't go to the street. They're not robbing for it. They're not um, overdosing because it's facilitated. The, the use of it is facilitated. Um, it takes them out of the black market. It takes them out of crime. Mm -hmm. um, they're not passing on HIV or hepatitis. And like you can actually go on and live a good life while doing that. A host to say then that, no, what you're doing is wrong. Like, yeah. Would you deny a diabetic insulin? Exactly. And if you're looking at drug use from a health lens, like yeah. what we expose in our policy, that's what we need to be looking at. But we're so far away from that in Ireland that that's the disappointing thing, I think. What yeah. do you think of uh, countries like Portugal? So in Portugal now, for, for 20 years, all drugs are decriminalized. They have some of the most progressive drugs laws in, in the world, where they basically say, these substances should not be illegal because what's happening is that people are self-medicating for pain. Mm -hmm. So we can't criminalize these people who are self-medicating. What would you like to see in Ireland in terms of a policy around, around drugs? Well, if you look at Portugal, right, the reason why that policy came in was because they had some of the highest rates of HIV in Europe and overdose deaths were through the roof. They were really at breaking point, you know, and what happened was they had a socialist government come into power. Yeah. And the socialist government, like a, ra like a radical situation like that, like that needed radical change. Yeah. And they brought this in. But even the most ardent of conservative opposers would not go back to the way it used to be. Because yeah. now they have some of the lowest HIV rates, they have some of the lowest overdose deaths, and prison population has gone way down. And what happens is, if you get caught in the city with a bag of weed, or a few yokes, or a bag of gear, or whatever, you're not uh, charged, convicted, or whatever. You go before a dissuasion committee. Mm -hmm. It's a lawyer, a, a doctor, a, a policeman, or whatever. So there's a board, and it's like, what are you using, what you're using? These are the options that's available to you, but you're not, we're not going to convict you because we know that doesn't work. Do you know what I mean? So, and, and it works really well. Mm -hmm. And there's loads of science to say that that works, but unfortunately in Ireland, we don't have evidence-based policies. No. We have moral-based policies, no. and, and that's the big problem. And it's a, lot, it's, it, a lot of it has got to do with class as well, blind by. Mm -hmm. Like, we brought in a, a Machia... Do you use that word limerick, Mark? No, yeah. we don't. It's but I know what it means. Yeah. My dad's from Cork, I know yeah. it. <laughs> it's, like a, it's like a spoof version of decriminalization yeah. in Ireland where two strikes, yeah. right? You get caught with weed or coke once and you avoid conviction. Twice you avoid conviction. Three times, status quo, you go to court, prison, whatever. Who's that for? That's for people who can just take or leave a bit of weed. Mm. Do you know if somebody comes into my service, chronic addiction, they get caught in the morning, Right, yeah. they get caught in the afternoon. They'll get caught again in the evening. Yeah. They're not thinking about court, but you know, if you're a student, yeah, and you might get caught with a bag of weed on Rag Week. If you're very unlucky, you might get caught twice when you're doing your degree. Yeah, you will avoid that conviction. Mm -hmm. So that policy is for a certain cohort of people. Yeah, but for people in a chronic addiction and people from neighbourhoods like my own, it's not for us. You know, and the status quo remains. And you know, it's just very disappointing that the stuff like Portugal is a, is one example, but in Germany. Does decriminalisation, you don't even have to go before a committee. Really? Yeah. And in Australia, in certain parts of Australia, it's the same. And they brought into some uh, states in America as well Portland. at the moment. Yeah, exactly. So, it, yeah. But Portugal is obviously the first that decriminalised all drugs. So it's working really well, but we don't have it here. And it's, like you spoke about Gabor Mate, I asked Gabor Mate the question you asked me. And he said to me, he says, 
I was brought before a Senate committee to explain my evidence-based practices. And I was looking around and I seen the politicians and they were looking at their phones and their watches. They weren't interested in what I was saying. And I stopped in the middle and I says, here you are asking me about my evidence-based practices, but you've no evidence-based policies. And he walked out. A fair play to him. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Wow. Um, yeah. Something I'd like to chat to you about because you, you spoke to Gabor Mate about this on your podcast is, so if we take the, the trauma-based lens around addiction, right? Ireland is a very traumatized country because of our history. What are your opinions about addiction, Ireland, and our history of trauma and intergenerational trauma? Well, the Irish people, firstly, like we're, we're known for crack, you know, we're known to be drinkers, yeah, you know, and, and um, but there's 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 more to that, yeah, you know. We could be having the crack Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, but the Monday, you're so depressed you can't get out of the bed, or mm -hmm. you know, uh, you could be, you know, contemplating taking your own life, you know, because of something that may have happened in your life, you know. That's what depression does. We get depression from alcohol and drugs. That's how I always felt, you know, and locking myself away in the house. But intergenerational trauma is, 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 is something that isn't spoken about regularly enough, you know. We, we, we've had a lot of different, different things happen within this country, and we spoke backstage about the famine. Yeah. Like, the effects of the famine, like, is, is still here. It's only 200 it, it, years it's ago. It's still here. We're talking about great-great-grandparents yeah. or great-grandparents. That, that's not a lot. But there's a, a number of factors you could look upon, you know. Up to 40 years ago, we, the, the, the families in this country were anything from 7 to 20. Yeah. You know, what, what form of anxiety and does that cause for a mother who can't feed her kids? Yeah. What, what does that yeah. do to us? And then you have kids that, who are bringing up each other. Yeah. You know, and there's all sorts of mad, you know, like, you have to understand that too. You know, yeah. these kids aren't to be, there's a saying, went, when, I, when I was inside in Shelton Abbey prison, I used to go into the library a lot and, and I'd ask the librarian in there for parenting books because I was going home to two young kids and I actually didn't know how to behave or be, become a parent because of my own upbringing, you know, um, and, and, I, and I'd look at these books and I'd ask her and, and I'd ask her to maybe teach me a little bit, a few things because I was going home to a family that I wasn't around before, while I was out of prison and stuff, um, so I started looking at, uh, at books and reading them and having conversations around parenting. You know, it wasn't until afterwards I really understood parenting is about just doing what you believe is the right thing for the child yeah. based on, on, on the reality of the situation and, and how you feel in your gut about whatever's but going on. But you have on. to have an emotional literacy with it, yourself. You have to know exactly. what you're fucking feeling. Exactly. Another guest we had on in that, in that space was uh, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. Oh, yeah. And he spoke to is us. That, what's his... Is it, the book is... Um, the Body Keeps the Score. The Body Keeps the Score, yeah. So I asked Bessel about... Ireland specifically, uh, and I was asking them about like what people can use, alternative methods that people can use to heal from trauma. And he spoke about song and dance and rhythm. And yeah. he says like if you look at he says like like we're talking about a collective trauma within Ireland and a negative 
uh, consequence of that would be the alcohol, all right? Yeah. But he spoke about, like, what about the positives? He said, if you look at the most traumatized countries in the world, they have the best dance, they have the yeah. best literature, the best music. Yeah. He said, like, Ireland is so famous, you know, the land of scholars and yeah. Irish dancing and, you know, famous playwrights and, you know, you're out there creating and, and all these things, you know. He said, if you look at, like, Af if you look at the Africa Cup of Nations, you know, yeah. if you look at the Ghana team coming in, the rhythm, the dancing, he's, that's a coping skill too. Yeah, you have the alcohol, but you have so much positive stuff too. He says, but you, he said like <coughs> yoga, uh, he said this now, so it's not just me. He said that yoga is proven to be work 10 times better than antidepressants, right? And he says, but you will never be prescribed yoga. You will never be prescribed dance or yeah. rhythm by your doctor. He's, and he's, he's on a bit of a crusade against medication. Yeah. He said medication is very important for some people, yeah. but he's against the over-prescribing of it. You know, so I, I think in Ireland, we have a collective trauma and intergenerational yeah. trauma, that, and alcohol is attributed to it, but there's so much positives that we've developed as well to cope with it. Do you know a French philosopher, Michel Foucault? I know Foucault, yeah. yeah oh, he, you got into him for the, the prisons? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's yeah, an yeah. Interesting fucker, he wrote yeah. a book on crime and punishment. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. In, in that, he talks about what you're talking about there. Like, it, I suppose the whole premise of the book is like uh, postmodernism. He'd be postmodernist, yeah. where like we're, we're, our civilization is evolving all the time to be better than the one that's previous. Yeah. And he crit he critiques that, right? And, and one of the examples he gives is what you gave. Like, we believe that you know people from the medieval times are savages, and we're yeah. so much better. But back in the day, if people had schizophrenia, they were seen as quirky yeah. and as like uh, great members of the community. You know, like they had their place and, and they were valuable. And but no, we medicate them. Sometimes we lock them away in asylums. Yeah. You know, and like, are we so much better than that civilization? We're, we're actually not. We're not. And if, like Foucault, he was a bit of a mad cunt as well, though. He died of AIDS. Yeah, he did. Yeah. 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 And Foucault, <laughs> he. He made a mad argument that he believes that uh, the public execution is actually healthier than prison system. Mm. Foucault believed that the social justice of, we'll say, murdering, executing a person is a healthier way than, he, he referred to the prison system as medicalizing problems, that it's actually more barbaric to get someone and remove their, their to, re to remove the person from society, that nobody learns from that. Mm. I'm but not saying I agree with it, I'm just I saying know. it's an interesting thing that Michel but, Foucault... But I think, I think if you look at it from, uh, from the macro level, right? So if you have a Cork City here, right? Um, and now where we grew up, there's a place called the Old Woman's Jail, Cork City Jail, and it was to hang people outside out of a Sunday morning. Yeah. So the spectacle of that would, yeah. would scare or would instill a sense of authority across the, the, the public, right, from the ruling class. But what Foucault is saying there, like, um, and, and when, the, when the prison system, the prison industrial complex come in, in, in the form of the Panopticon, all right, and yeah. it was Jeremy Bentham. He was he, another mad cunt, yeah. yeah. But that was around the Industrial Revolution. How do you, and it was the prisons, it was asylums, it was factories. How do you observe everybody from one point? And when you and they don't know whether they're being watched or not. They think they're always being watched, yeah. so they're just going to conform. But what Foucault was saying about that was like, your house, like you might execute one person, but instead of execute some, executing one person, now we're 
locking thousands away behind closed doors and nobody gets to see the punishment and sometimes the punishment is prolonged it's torture solitary confinement and is uh, exposing thousands of people to solitary confinement actually better than executing one for society to, as a whole as a macro exactly yeah. so it's just another perspective it's another perspective it's not something that uh, me and James are saying let's start executing <laughs> people because that's the thing about Foucault you know what I mean I just think it's interesting um, it the, just gets you thinking. The Panopticon then as well, Jeremy Bentham. So he, Bentham designed the, the, the prison, which a lot of modern prisons are based on. Even in Irish prisons, like there's the circle, yeah. and every, all the wings come out of the circle, and then you can look down all the landings at any one time. And the thing is, is that the prisoner, Bentham's theory was that the prisoner will never know whether he's being watched or not, That's the, so therefore he will conform. And but the factory worker. And the factory worker too. Yeah. And, and our, our fucking phones, man. Yeah. Our social media. We now mediate our behavior because we don't know, am I being watched or am I being listened to? Mm. So the social media companies have taken Bentham's panopticon. But Bentham, when he died, demanded that his body be stuffed and placed at the head of the fucking board of directors of the hospital. It's still fucking there, man. It's like 200. <laughs> you know about that, don't you? No. You know about Jeremy Bentham? Stuffed, man. You didn't know that? Go out there. Jeremy fucking Bentham. <laughs> His fucking body, 200-year-old, is just sitting there in a glass case. And it's only like 40 years ago. People were... It was, it, he, he said it was a hospital, and he said, I have a huge fortune, right? I will give all my money to this hospital. And the hospital was like, yeah, okay, we need it. But my corpse has to be at the top of the board of directors. Fucking hell. And they did it, like, they, they only got rid of him in, like, the 1950s. That's madness. But they still have his body. They took it away from the board of directors, and they moved it outside, and there's a wardrobe. But if you open it, he's in there. <laughs> that, look him up, Jeremy Bentham. That, that's legit. Fucking madness. You have to fact-check that in a minute. So... But I suppose... Why, who says he should be fucking designing prisons? I know. And, and, and I think around, around the time of the Enlightenment as well, we're trying to move away from the savagery of you know, public floggings and stuff like that. Like, but maybe the motivation to create the prison industrial complex was to so people wouldn't be slaughtered on the street. But did we actually make it better? No. I don't think we did no. either. Um, here's an interesting theory I heard about the Enlightenment. And it's, it's related to substances. They claim the Enlightenment happened because the West got exposed to coffee. So up until, so the Enlightenment was like the 17th century, and it's a very Western thing, and it's when a lot of modern science and all this comes from the Enlightenment, where mostly men who had a lot of money would sit around and think. But the thing was, this new, because of colonization, this new substance came about called coffee. So they all start, instead of meeting in pubs or taverns and drinking, they all now started meeting in coffee houses and driving themselves mad from caffeine. And the enlightenment happened from that. There's a boiling hot coffee and a boiling hot take. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you to my guests, the two Naris. Um, that was a wonderful chat. That was a very enlightening chat. It was an absolute privilege to hear two people speak about their lived experience of some quite tough shit and to hear how they're coming out the other end of it and helping people. One other thing I want to plug is Timmy there, who you heard speaking. 
he's organizing a GoFundMe page, right? And it's called Walk This Way to a Wider Education. And Timmy basically is trying to raise 24,000 euro so that kids who were in schools in Cork who were struggling with their education, Timmy's raising money so that kids can get psychological assessments to find out if they may be struggling with dyslexia, ADHD, autism, any educational issue because not every child can afford this. Like, as you know, um, I'm autistic. I struggled terribly in school. Um, it would have been quite helpful to me at a young age to receive a diagnosis in school and to understand why I was underperforming. So Timmy Lang's GoFundMe page, Walk This Way to a Wider Education, is trying to create that change in the lives of kids in schools in Cork who may need a diagnosis. So please consider supporting that and I will catch you next week uh, with some hot takes. And thank you to the, to the two Naris for that chat and check out their podcast too. Talk bless. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 